This week on the It's a Monkey podcast. Blockchain will not generate trust either. I like to say that blockchain is actually the opposite of a trust machine. It, it is about two people that don't trust each other exchanging value. And that is really interesting. It's technologically fascinating, but it, it doesn't produce new ways of trust. Trust happens off-chain. The thing about blockchain is that it was purely digital. Those bitcoins are on the internet and they're nowhere else. They're, they're, they're in the cloud, if you like. They're only digital. Nothing happens off-chain. There's no trust off-chain. But as soon as you say something like, I want to put a land title or a health record on the blockchain, you need to bridge the analog to the digital. You need to bridge the real world to the, to the chain. And that, that edge effect is, is always involving some sort of agent or a third party. Good morning, good evening, hello, wherever you are in the world. My name is Kevin Garber. I am the CEO of Managed Flutter and soon to be Managed Social as well. We are coming to you from the beautiful Sydney, Australia. Um, spring here. If you follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you'll see some beautiful spring photos that I have been sharing. You are listening to episode number 108, 108 of the It's a Monkey podcast. It's a tech podcast where we talk about entrepreneurship, innovation, blockchain technology, AI, machine learning, how technology affects society. So we really uh, cover a very, very wide range of topics. We interview thought leaders in the space. And uh, as usual, I have my co-host with me, Kate Frappel, who's in Whistler, Canada at the moment. Kate, thank you for joining us. No worries. It's good to be here. It's very, very cold outside. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's a perfect 23 today in Sydney, Australia. Just, it is literally the textbook human perfect temperature, which is, which is wonderful. And we got a very big dumping of snow last night. So we've got maybe a, a foot of fluffy snow to, to wade through just to walk anywhere. Sounds fun. As usual, we've got a great show coming up for you. Uh, later on in the show, I chat with Steve Wilson, who's the principal analyst at Constellation Research. Now, Steve is in Sydney, which is great. I managed to drag him into the studio. Always nice when we can have an in-guest, uh, sorry, in-studio in guest as opposed to Skype. And we spoke about blockchain. Now, you'll probably notice that there's a bit of a theme going on on our podcast with blockchain and Bitcoin because it's really hitting its stride, not only in terms of price. I mean, Bitcoin is now over $7,000. Bear in mind, a few months ago, it was only $400. But in terms of adoption in terms of people talking about it, in terms of people understanding it, in terms of a real sense that blockchain and Bitcoin are here to stay and could be pretty transformative to our society, not only in terms of being a cryptocurrency, but in terms of democracy itself. Um, As a store of value, Bitcoin is doing a lot better than many countries are doing, for example, the very um, unstable states of Zimbabwe and Venezuela and countries like that are, are just pouring into Bitcoin. So I had a great chat with Steve about blockchain, what it is, how it's related to Bitcoin. So if you're interested in blockchain and Bitcoin, stick around and we will play that interview that I did with Steve a little bit later. As always, you can email us, podcast.itsamonkey.com. You can tweet us. We love to hear from you. You can subscribe on iTunes. You can rate us on iTunes and give us a bit of feedback on iTunes. We're going to kick the show off as always with a little bit of tech news and Kate I actually bumped into a friend who's a listener to the podcast and I was chatting to him 
about what he enjoys. And uh, he said he actually often enjoys the news items as much, if not more, than the interviews. So we definitely shouldn't drop the news piece as well. And I'm, I'm glad he said that because I think there's so much happening in our industry that any way we can help people just surface some of the more interesting stories and the more interesting trends and give them a little bit of food for thought helps them a little bit because, boy, every single aspect of our industry just evolves at such a remarkably crazy pace. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think I think the thing that most people would take away from it, as you said, would be the, the discussion, the, the food for thought. You know, a lot of the articles you read, they, they tell you the facts and that's it. But then if you have a discussion, you can actually say, well, this is what's going to mean for something else and, like, the impact it's going to have in general. And, of course, today... Before we get into uh, news items, the, the new iPhone is launching in Sydney. I assume it's around the world as well. Yep, iPhone X or 10. iPhone X, so be interesting. Uh, we'll maybe, we'll maybe uh, get you one so you can have a play and, and keep in the loop. They're pretty pricey though, right? What, 1100 Australian or something like that? I think so. I believe so. The uh, pre-orders started, I think, last week. But yeah, now they're probably available in stores, but... Um, I'd be interested to see, as much as I love Apple, it, they seem to have done a lot with this phone. And after Samsung's uh, issue last year with it exploding and stuff like that, I'm just, uh, I'm a bit wary to see whether it's going to happen to the <laughs> to the iPhone 10 as well. Uh, look, I, I think Apple have been in this game a long time and they, they're very good at what they do. I, I, I I think it would be very unlikely that their phones would be exploding. I think anything's possible, but very, very unlikely. I think it was very a culmination of a unique set of events where the Samsung, was it the Note that was? Yeah, um, the Galaxy. The Galaxy oh, Note was, was exploding. But, yeah. um, I think yeah, Apple just said like expanding batteries, actually. Like the batteries are, are expanding inside the phone, which causes everything else to buckle. Right. Um, yeah, I think that was happening with the 8, so... But not exploding, just just looking a bit funky. So I'll just wait and see with the 10, I think. I can iron, iron out the bumps first. You know, um, the modern cell phones are, are engineering marvel pieces. Every, you know, we all take it for granted. But, boy, um, the, 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 the battery power, the processing power, the screen resolution – all the capability is just remarkable. And um, to do these at scale and at a price that's, you know, it's only $1,000. Now, that's a lot of money when you have to work for it. But in terms of what you get out of it, yeah, you know, it wasn't that long ago that um, laptops, a decent laptop was was $4,000 or so. So It's true. It's, uh, Actually, I read an interesting article the other day. It was saying how you tend to think that these things are affordable and they are, but it comes at the expense of other things. So stuff that we used to spend money on, we don't spend money on as much anymore because we're putting our money towards uh, gadgets. Yes, yes, definitely. And also not only that, there's something called real cost economics where the impact to the environment and society is not taken into account. So if these phones are destroying parts of the environment because we, we're mining and uh, you know, a lot of the time that's not factored into the price or if there's um, exploitative labor, it's not factored into the price. So this is where capitalism does break down, particularly international capitalism where it's difficult to regulate because a way around that is to regulate and, and to, to create a level playing field or tax or control. So that's why, you know, clothes are so cheap, but 
you know, it's what good is it if it's exploiting a whole society so we can have clean, cheap clothes? It's it's that that's not the solution either. So, uh, real cost economics is is something that our modern society needs to get a whole lot better at. And of course, the blockchain can actually help with all of this by tracking and helping with micropayments, things like that. But that's a whole whole other discussion. We won't quite get into but that's that's why the blockchain is so interesting as well but let's get into this week's news stories i see um i see there's a, a university that's come up with a prototype for an interesting new two-factor authentication some people might not know that by name but it's actually when for example you try to log into your bank online banking and it will send you a text and once of code so that you can log in so two-factor meaning you have to provide two bits of authentication, your password, and it's often a, a text message or Google Authenticator. So two-factor two authentication is becoming more and more common because it really helps prevent hacking. So I see they've come out with a new prototype that's a, a new take on two-factor auth. Yeah, so the Florida International University, uh, at this stage only a prototype, but I think it could, it could be a viable experiment. Uh, and they've called it Pixie. Basically, you pick a, an object. So it could be a trinket, a piece of jewelry, a tattoo, or something super common like a packet of bubble gum. And you can photograph that a number of different ways in good lighting. It will remember that. And then that becomes your second piece of identification. So instead of having to get these codes uh, from like the Google Auth app or as you said, like a text message from your bank, you have your secret object um, and you use your phone's camera. So only a smartphone camera could potentially also work on um, a smartwatch or even like the Snapchat spectacles. Um, you scan your object and it authenticates that way. So when they were doing this test, it's actually uh, they found it a lot faster than trying to switch between apps and put the code in. Um, but slower than facial recognition, which is sort of what's getting introduced on the iPhone 10. I mean, it's it's sort of quirky, you know, where it will say, right to log in, just take a photo of, um, you know, the picture of Auntie Jane and uh, you take a photo get, or point your camera at it. But I don't think, I don't think it's that much easier than, than firing up Google Authenticator, really. Ah. Uh. I, I would prefer it, to be honest. Like, imagine if you had really? a little tattoo on your finger or or maybe a wrist or something instead, and you could use that to, to access all your stuff. It would be so much quicker than having to swap and remember the code or write it down. And, like, uh, at the moment, I find yeah, it I painful. Know. I don't know. It doesn't. To me, it's, it's it doesn't... It doesn't... I mean, I, to me, I find all, all types of two-factor auth painful probably what would be the easiest for me would be to say something if something popped up on the screen and it said you know please read the sentence the cat jumps over the fence and i just say the cat jumps over the fence and boom i mean that that probably would be the the most frictionless but as soon as i have to point my camera somewhere and wait for it to process and and to me i may as well just fire up google authenticator and type in a code but yeah it's, i guess potentially I, know, I think as well, like, aside from the code, people are they're starting to use you know, their biometrics. They're using their fingerprint or um, scanning their eyes and things like that. But 
once that's hacked, uh, it's not easily changed, but you could easily change your object. Right, so you can keep it. You can keep it fresh. Yeah. So once a month, you just you just get a new object, and they can't. No one can spend a lifetime reverse engineering where some smart hacker somewhere can spend a lifetime trying to reverse engineer what your eye looks like, and maybe eventually gets there. Get there. That that's a good point. I mean that 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 I would imagine is a uh, plus of of being able to to have a moving target the whole time. Yeah. But um, yeah. Maybe in like a, a tattoo. It's actually, I found that interesting idea too. If you had a unique tattoo, but then you've got, you got to get a new tattoo every now and then, right? Well, but if you, if they can't, otherwise you're in the same situation. Oh no! But if if I had a, a tattoo as my authenticator, then you would physically have to take a picture of my tattoo, and I would see you do that. I know, but the, but you said you would like to change the photo regularly to keep the target moving. But if you're only going to use the tattoo. That's true. Then you're not changing it. So, um, but yeah, it's interesting. A tattoo would be an interesting, um, an interesting concept. But um, I mean, what about an embeddable RFID or similar chip inside your body? It's like that guy put the Opal card, which is the the smart card for the Sydney's transport system. He embedded the chip in his wrist somehow. Yeah. You know, what about, what about a little, a little chip that we, get implanted in our finger and that just seamlessly works as a um, two-factor auth as well. Yeah. It's kind of the same idea except you don't have to insert a chip under your skin. But, yeah. yeah. Which, anyway, that's two-factor auth. I always switch on your two-factor auth if you have the option, whether it's Gmail or your in cryptocurrency wallet or your banking. Always, it makes a very big difference. It's, it really increases security on your accounts hugely even though it is a little bit of a pain and it is a pain but um it's definitely worth because once once these things are hacked it can be a major problem and people are always trying to break into them so always switch your two-factor auth on another article um in the news facebook live launches a built-in screen sharing function now this is one of these news stories that's um it's just might actually not be that sexy, but has a lot of interesting practical application. Now, of course, Facebook Live is where you fire up a live video stream either via your mobile or via your desktop and it streams your camera and they've uh, included a feature now where you can share your screen, which I think is pretty terrific for webinar purposes, training purposes, and it's I think it's a pretty smart feature. Live streaming has been going absolutely nuts. It's becoming more and more popular with Periscope and Facebook Live being the two popular ones. I think Instagram's also got a live streaming. I don't know about Snapchat. No, not that I believe. But I would imagine um, quite a few businesses would be able to now use Facebook Live. Like for Manage Flitter, we'd be able to have a webinar only on Facebook Live, which would sort of be pretty cool, right? Instead of going through one of the webinar tools, we can actually just to have a webinar via our Facebook page and share screen. So a simple little addition, but I actually think a really nice touch. Yeah, especially since like uh, up until up until now, people have had to use third-party tools to do this and rely rely on them. And some of them haven't been all that reliable. Um, so the fact that like Facebook's bought implemented it is is a plus, and it's actually. Only available on Chrome, not Firefox. Um, so it's sort right, of like that's a interesting. yeah, at this stage. So it's a 
like a, a browser extension, I believe. So you install the Facebook screen sharing extension and then you can choose whether you want to show just an app, just the browser or your whole screen, like all your computer. So you can actually like isolate what they can see as well, which is which is good because by when you're live and you're sharing everything to potentially millions of people, you're going to want to limit what they see on your computer, I think. Yeah, so always risk. You always got to be careful when you screen share that you don't not screen sharing something incredibly, um, incredibly personal. But um, yeah, look, Facebook still doing amazing things with their product. Facebook earnings came out this week; they were amazing. The share bounced to an all-time high of about one hundred and eighty-six dollars. Remember, Facebook listed. I think it was. I'm trying to remember if it was about twenty-three, twenty-four dollars somewhere around there. Right, and it has gone right up now to $186. They're making incredible product decisions on on Facebook, Instagram. I see WhatsApp. I don't know if you noticed they launched a new feature this week, Kate, where you can actually delete your messages. Mm, I read an article about that. Yeah, that you can actually retrieve them back before someone can see them. So I think people are going to have to start screenshotting a whole lot more on WhatsApp if they want to save stuff because people can just delete things now, which... And I've never really had the urge really to delete a WhatsApp message, but I don't know, maybe now that it's there, I'll see if I'll start using it. I mean, I, I chat mostly to friends on WhatsApp and for non-professional purposes. So I'm not quite sure how often or how important that feature is. I think more it's incriminating stuff if people send drunken texts or people having bad breakups or something, wake up the next morning and they want to delete a whole heap of stuff that they said um, in jest but anyway it's interesting nonetheless that they've added that feature yeah I feel like it could be a um, sort of an extension of some of these I've forgotten what they're called now but you can do it on Facebook as well in messenger uh, you go into like a private mode it's not as well known but basically your your messages expire so right. once once someone's seen it sort of like snapchat somebody sees it it's there for 10 seconds and it's gone so you can sort of you can use that feature but People haven't really been picking up on it, I think. And so potentially this is their way of integrating it into a more accessible and a way to get it in front of people to see if they use it. I think I think there was an interesting article recently or a few months ago, it might have been the Atlantic or one of these long-form online media um, websites where they spoke about how relationships these days live forever inside our email and our texts and our WhatsApps. And it was commenting how about before these technologies, you know, when relationship ends, maybe you'll have a couple of letters or something that, that, that you wrote, but not this almost um, live view into the relationship where these days there's so much communication that when a relationship ends, um, you can almost go back over the whole period of the relationship on a day-by-day basis and almost even relive the whole relationship and it doesn't really doesn't really die. It stays there forever. It's an interesting article. Sure. If anyone's interesting to, to Google, it was interesting analysis. Yeah, definitely. I never really thought about it like that, but it's true. It's true. I've got all my old, even I'm sure if you went through my archives, you'd probably find conversations I had with high school friends when I first got a phone. It's probably all, all archived because if you've had an iPhone for a few years, like I had an iPhone 3, I think in high school and I've just sort of upgraded as the years gone by but I've just always used the like iTunes sync to update each phone so it's always carried carried the information from the previous phone 
Well, I think what would be really interesting is for future generations, like you know, your grandchildren, or imagine we could read our grandparents' day-to-day interactions with their partners and their friends, and oh. I think it would be fascinating, right? I think it would be absolutely fascinating to see how they saw the world. I mean, some of it would be absolutely cringeworthy. Yes, right. I was going to say, I wouldn't but, want someone to be reading mine, <laughs> but I would probably be interested in reading theirs. But, yeah, and, you know, social norms change and moral attitudes change, so some of it will be very cringeworthy, but the others would be incredibly insightful. You know, my friend posted uh, this week on Facebook that she was given by her grandmother some a diary that her grandfather wrote during the war. And she's only starting to read it now. And she posted some of these. Um, apparently, it was illegal to write a diary during the war because it exposed you if you got caught and things like that. But this guy snuck and snuck it away and wrote uh, wrote every day. And it's it's absolutely fascinating. You know, it's absolutely absolutely fascinating to capture the insights into you know the the story of. You know, every every human's a universe, and to get a little bit of an insight into these unique experiences and unique times, and in the digital world, it's it's there. I mean, I think future generations are going to have these tools to be able to to read all this historical bits and pieces, and maybe even our families go through our Facebook accounts. And I think there are tools, and Facebook gives you tools. I think Facebook lets you allocate someone to take control over your Facebook account in the event of your death. I think. Oh, that's interesting. I think there's a setting there. um, It's not a very nice topic, but I have sort of seen, thankfully no one I've known personally, but sort of friends of friends who have been in fatal accidents and things like that. And it's just interesting to look at those those people who have passed away, their Facebook profile. It becomes sort of like a memorial. Like people just share things about them, how much they miss them. And it happens like every year, like on their birthday or the anniversary of their death and stuff. And I'm always wonder like should that stuff should that profile be deleted or does it just stay there as like sentimental value it's 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 an interesting one it's an interesting one and now facebook have so many you know over a billion well over a billion users every day they've got a lot of people a lot of users that die i mean it's, yeah. it's it is a bit of a morbid topic but it's a very real you know it's something they had to deal with I th- I th- I'm not entirely sure. I think there is a way that if you send them a death certificate, they memorialize the page for you or, you know, they do have processes in place. But, yes, it is used as a place to to share and, um, yeah. you know, it is – and friends to gather in a way which which these days people are spread all over the world. It's, it is actually – you know, Facebook for – Regardless of what people think of it, it is it is quite a remarkable platform in terms of the way it provides a forum for for us to communicate around these events and and similar type of uh, interesting moments in our lives. Mm. I wonder too, like down the track, you know, if everyone who dies doesn't delete their profile, then eventually, like you're going to have a lot of people with the same name, and some will be alive and some won't be. Like if you're searching yeah, for people um, and stuff, it's, it's going to mess up some of the data. Uh, look, they'll easily be able to surface searches of people that are alive only just by logins and things like that. I don't think that's, yeah, I don't think that's, uh, that they'll have that sorted and, you know, I think that's, I don't think that's a huge thing. They'll just have to factor that in. But uh, they're very good at what they do. They've got some of the smartest people in the world there now. They really hit their stride. 
So um, I think I think Facebook's going to be around for a long, long time. So uh, they, they're making some good decisions. Anyway, um, that's the news. Um, we're going to take a short break. Remember, you can email us at podcast.itsamonkey.com with any feedback. You can also go to itsamonkey.com and leave some comments on our show notes. We always put full show notes up there. We're going to take a short break. And after the break, um, we're going to play my interview with Steve Wilson, who's the principal analyst at Constellation Research. And we talk more about Bitcoin and blockchain. Stick around. Hi, my name is Joe Pinto. I'm the business operations manager here at Manage Flitter. Did you know that Twitter can be a powerful social selling platform? But the first step to effective social selling on Twitter is to grow your Twitter account with high-quality niche followers. For example, let's say you are an online bicycle retailer. Manage Flitter could help you grow your Twitter account by helping you find and follow people who have the word cyclist in their bio. The more targeted your search is, the higher likelihood these Twitter accounts will follow you back. We have millions of users, literally, that have used Manage Flitter's search, sort and filtering tools to grow their account with the right followers. This has provided them with a solid base to kickstart their social selling. Feel free to drop by manageflitter.com to trial our product or email us at contact at manageflitter.com to schedule an obligation-free walkthrough. You're back with It's a Monkey Podcast. My name is Kevin Garber. We talk about everything uh, relating to tech, startups, the tech economy, and all those exciting bits and pieces on the show. I'm the CEO of Manage Flitter. Now, you probably would have noticed if you're a regular listener to the show that a theme has been blockchain and crypto for a couple of reasons. One is we think it's really going to be a, a fundamental building block of the next phase of technology in our industry. Another reason is that um, I always joke that there's probably only about six people that understand this technology. Um, everyone's a little bit too afraid to say that they don't understand it. But it's, it's, it's quite an obscure technology um, to understand. And a couple of weeks ago, we had Dr. Tal Rupke talking about his blockchain-related startup on our show, which is a startup that's aiming to um, have paperless medical prescriptions and we chatted to Dr. Tal about his startup and then there was a little bit of a Twitter interchange about that um, podcast. A few people shared it and a few people responded and one of the people that responded was Steve Wilson and he responded um, with a little bit of constructive criticism about the concepts in that interview and I was happy to see that um, Steve actually lives in Sydney and I've actually dragged him into the studio to have a mm. chat about blockchain. So I'm uh, happy to say Steve Wilson, who's the, the principal, who is a principal analyst at Constellation Research, which is a Silicon Valley research house. I've managed to drag him into our Sydney studios. Thanks so much for joining us, Steve. Pleasure, Kevin. Great to be here. And um, it's good to be real, right? In real life, here uh, we are face to face. We, we get a little bit uh, tired of all this virtual connection and uh, it's a social media connection and it's uh, face-to-face. Or as uh, a guy I learned sales from many years ago, he used to say belly-to-belly, belly, but I'm not quite sure I, I like that that uh, vision, but he always used to say sales needs to be done belly to belly, you know, face to face. Is that English? Pot belly to pot belly? Yeah, it's, it's uh, conjures up, it conjures up the wrong image. But anyway, face to face, face to face is fine. So blockchain. Now you had some interesting thoughts, Steve. Tell us, tell us what's, as, what do you see as the, the lay of the land? There's a lot of hype. I mean, every time I hop, hop behind the mic, uh, Bitcoin seems to have gone 
back up. Um, there's obviously a loose relationship, or I should say more than a loose relationship, a special relationship between the blockchain and Bitcoin. What's the lay of the land with blockchain technologies and technological um, um, state of play? Well, you know, I think it's all about, it's all about inspiration. Um, I, I don't normally use a lot of metaphors because I try to explain blockchain in plain English. Um, so many of the visual metaphors are just awful. Um, but one metaphor I do like is that um, blockchain is like the Wright Brothers flyer. Um, you know, the very first powered aeroplane. Mm -hmm. It flew something like 20 metres across a, across a field. Um, people watched it. They said it couldn't be done. Um, it, was, it was the Holy Grail powered flight. Now, what blockchain did originally was that it solved the Holy Grail of cryptocurrency. Um, and cryptographers said it couldn't be done. You couldn't have strangers exchanging electronic cash without some sort of intermediary. And the fact that blockchain did that was a lot like the flyer insofar as it solved an unsolvable problem in tech. And whenever that happens, history tells us that you get extraordinary innovation for years and years afterwards. But equally, you get a lot of misturns. So the, the thing about the metaphor is that if you look at the history of, of flight for five years after the Wright Brothers flyer, it was diabolical. Everyone and their dog got into the garage. They started putting together these contraptions. Most of them were farcical. And, you know, with, with, with respect, there is a lot of I'm – I'm trying to find some polite words, but there's a lot of well-meaning – well, there's well-meaning energy going on, but mm -hmm. just extraordinary nonsense, um, crazy applications for this technology that, that really make no sense. So I think the next two or three years we're going to see some calm – um, come in. I think that people are going to go back to the to the drawing board really carefully. Mm -hmm. And um, yes, blockchain technologies for the next ten to twenty years will be important, but we can't really forecast in any detail what they're going to look like. And most of what I see is just nonsense. Most of the things that you read about blockchain are just flat out wrong. What about cryptocurrency? I mean, th there's been a lot of talk that. Um it's going to land up with a lot of tiers. I mean, uh, Bitcoin's heading towards six thousand yeah. dollars. Um, the J.P. Morgan CEO says it's a, uh, it's 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 a totally bunch of nonsense. How does the cryptocurrency fit into the whole blockchain side of things? It's it's intellectually and conceptually a mess. Um, it's it's funny that, that the J.P. Morgan guy got so much flack for saying that he had a concern about Bitcoin. Bitcoin was constructed by crypto anarchists and, and it's still by and large believed in by people that want to reject Wall Street and they want to reject the Fed and they want to reject the Australian Reserve Bank and that's fine. Um, I think that there is room in the world for cashless um, electronic money um, outside of the financial system. But if you're of that philosophy, you're a crypto anarchist, you thumb your nose at Wall Street, why the hell do you care what JP Morgan says about Bitcoin? Mm. I mean, get stuffed. <laughs> keep, keep spending your Bitcoin by all means. But you can't have it both ways. Um, Satoshi Nakamoto had a vision of, of getting away from institutional banking. And by and large, they, they, they realised that vision with Bitcoin. But now Bitcoin has got mired as a collectible. It's hyper-deflationary. If, you, if you're holding a Bitcoin, why in God's name would you ever spend it? It is, mm -hmm. it is unspendable as money. So I think that Nakamoto rolls in their grave as to what's happened to this thing. It's, it's purely a collectible. Um, it's only valuable because it's valuable. And um, if, if it's seriously separate from the financial system, then, then so be it. 
But now wrapped up in all of that, the excitement about Bitcoin appears to point towards um, some sort of validity of blockchain itself. Now, the original blockchain designed for Bitcoin is actually incredibly tightly coupled to Bitcoin. Now, obviously, there's the issue of mining and the blockchain survives because of mining. But I'm talking about something deeper than that. Blockchain was designed for Bitcoin in the same way that railroad tracks are designed for railway carriages. Mm-hmm. Now, theoretically, these things are separate. And you can take a locomotive off the, off the train track and run it down the road if you like, but it's an awful thing. Bitcoin and blockchain go together because they were designed together. Um, if you want to separate them and if you want to do blockchain type of transactions in, in the real world or if you want to um, put diamonds on the blockchain or if you want to do, as some banks are doing, if you want to do electronic financial instruments on a blockchain type of structure, you have to go back to the drawing board and do it all over again. And, and indeed, that's what we're seeing. Um, big consortia like R3 are redesigning distributed ledgers for different uh, applications. Um, there are companies like Evernim who have designed a distributed ledger for identity attributes. Um, you've got the Hyperledger project and what IBM's doing of using this sort of technology in a new form with a new design to do things like trade documentation and um, really complicated data sets, uh, quite different from the original uh, Bitcoin cryptocurrency applications. And, and that's what I mean about innovation. You know, they, they looked at the Wright Brothers flyer of cryptocurrency and they rethought it and they went back to the drawing boards and they're coming up with stuff that, you know, it's early days. They're coming up with stuff that, that has got legs and um, and it will go through another third and fourth and fifth generation before we really have, you know, a proper blockchain industry. Do you think governments are um, very worried about crypto? I mean, as you mentioned, the, 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 at the moment, the Bitcoin has no signs of being a, a, a replaceable currency because it's so volatile, because it's, it's so deflationary. Depends which way you look at it, inflationary slash deflationary um, because of the price increase. Um, But governments, I mean, being an anarchist currency, would governments be incredibly worried just as the internet in a way, you know, decentralized information distribution in a way you can't shut down the internet. You can try filter it. You can try put firewalls. You can, I mean, I believe China over the weekend has tightened up a few things, but you really can't shut down the internet, I guess, unless every single country would make some concerted effort. Is blockchain in a similar state of affairs that governments may be worried, but eventually it is going to find its its own pathway and we may see almost elements of the nation state questioned or threatened because something like a global currency, a genuine global currency, not just like a pro- not a proxy, just like uh, the US dollar will actually emerge. Yeah, I, I don't actually see any signs of real panic from the government. I mean, I think that the anarchists would like the government to be panicky and there's certainly um, some noise and some chatter out there. And whenever a reserve around the world decides to do some sort of cryptocurrency experiment and spend a little bit of money building their own blockchain, then the press reports that, oh, you know, reserve banks are are moving to the blockchain. Estonia. Estonia is not moving to the blockchain. Estonia. I um, thought they're talking about a cryptocurrency, national cryptocurrency. Well, they're they're exploring Uh the the long-term impact of what would it mean to have an electronic cash. This is not moving to the blockchain. Uh, What they're doing is they've got got some tremendous digital labs in Estonia. They're a very digital country. They're fantastic that way, but they're innovators. So, you know, innovators experiment. Mm. And you you can't jump onto every single project that Estonia um, talks about gets gets exploded into, you know, the project for Estonia. And uh, they've got years to go. 
I'm absolutely tip my hat to Estonia, but it doesn't mean that they're moving, quote, to the blockchain, end quote. Could there be a world cryptocurrency? I, you know, th there could be an underground currency and, you know, Bitcoin obviously does that to some degree and there could be another one. I, I don't think the government around the world are going to panic about that. Um, it's, a, it's a little bit, I hope, I hope that I'm not stretching the metaphor, but or the comparison, it is a little bit like cryptography itself or encryption. So we've mm -hmm. got this new breed of the crypto wars mm -hmm. where law enforcement around the world are, are frightened that they're losing their ability to intercept criminal communication. So I get that. It is, you know, if I was a cop, I'd be worried about that too. But intercepting communications is not the only way that laws are enforced. And equally, um, cryptocurrency isn't the only way that criminals spend money. I mean, there's plenty of actual real money being... being uh, exchanged by terrorists, despite the, the AML and counter-terrorist financing agreements around the world, these things haven't really worked and, and the, the criminals by and large are spending real money, not crypto money. So tell us, um, for the someone listening to this podcast, um, that all of this is a little bit sort of still theoretical. What are some areas that blockchain may impact their life, whether they're technology practitioners mm. or whether they're just the person in the street? Well, Let's understand that, that blockchain is a new form of plumbing. It's a new way of plumbing information. Um, people talk about it roughly as a new breed of database. And look, insofar as we need ways of managing complicated data sets and we need new ways of doing that quicker, then, then yes, blockchain is a type of database. I think it's much more important to understand that these sorts of technologies are, are for particular types of data movement and that they're for applications that are called leaderless or trustless. Let's just go back to blockchain 101. Mm -hmm. Blockchain allowed two people who don't know each other and they have no trusted intermediary, they have no reserve bank. It allows two people to exchange Bitcoin. Now, Bitcoin's a fabulously expensive thing. You can, you can exchange a million dollars worth of value between total strangers reliably. And that's amazing to not have any intermediary. Now, what that means is that Normally, a security system requires people, process and technology, like, you know, there's a famous three-legged stool that security professionals talk about. Um, blockchain took away the people in process and it allows two people just using this tech to exchange real money reliably. And that is amazing. It's called trustless because you don't have to trust people, you don't have to trust process. The big end of town looked at that and said, wow, there are, there are certain applications where there is no leader Let's not talk about trust, it's a confusing word, but there's plenty of applications where there is no leader. So, for example, um, three or four trading banks, often you'll have a tripartite exchange, a derivative swap or some horribly complicated financial instrument between three banks. And um, those things normally take days and days to clear because the paperwork normally goes to some sort of third party or regulator to, to um, resolve because the banks themselves can't share all of their data. They can't open up their books. They're, they're, they're competitors. A blockchain type of technology allows people to share a little bit of their ledger, suffice to, to support that transaction. So R3, for example, is working on these fabulously complicated new ledger technologies that allow banks to cooperate and to compete at the same time without putting another administration layer over there. And without administration, these things then work really fast. Instead of a three-day clearance, you could settle these things in minutes. So this, this has got to do with in Australia that next year um, you'll be able to transfer money between any bank instantaneously. Well, and that's happening that. using conventional tech. Yeah, um, that's not a blockchain. That's just traditional tech and integrating in the right way and correct. having all, all the systems in place. Now, 
you know, T plus zero settlement works in a regulated banking environment where there is a regulator sitting over the top like the reserve. For some of these more complicated instruments that R3 is working on, there is no intermediary. Another example is trade documentation. So um, IBM is piloting the use of this type of technology for shipping manifests. You know, when you put a whole lot of stuff on a ship, there's a hundred different um, contributors, a hundred different inputs to a shipping manifest. The ship sails, it gets to the other end, they unpack the ship and some of these avocados are missing. Mm. And people um, then spend days and days, weeks. On average, it takes 60 days to resolve a shipping dispute. Now, there's no magic in this, but there's a, there's a very good sign that blockchain-type technologies will allow you to construct shipping manifests in real time so that when the ship sails, everybody agrees what's on the ship. And... Um, this is quite amazing that the cost of shipping dispute resolution is several percent of the cost of shipping. It's about as costly as the fuel. Mm. Um, so the, That's significant. It is incredible. Mm. So, you know, I love this sort of story because shipping manifests, um, cargo manifests, um, data, blah, 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 you know, it's kind of mundane. It's not as sexy as Bitcoin. But the impact is going to be vastly greater than Bitcoin. You well, know, hopefully you that take, will um, decrease prices for people. Exactly. You could take 1% or 2% out of the cost of shipping and that will flow straight through. It'll also come through in terms of time, um, goods held up on, on docks while people resolve disputes. All of this stuff has, has impact on consumers. So, you know, we're going to see some fairly, I say by, by on the one hand it's mundane, mm. but on the other hand it could be really transformative in terms of cost and time. So do you ever see this though? You know, it's a type of plumbing. Does the... Does the person in the street ever see T plus zero settlement from the Reserve Bank? No. But what they do get over time is that they get some cheaper banking, they get some new banking products. And, uh, you know, as a technologist, I think I'm, I'm saying that these new derivative blockchains, they're not going to be visible to the person on the street, but they are going to have some sort of um, impact on the way that business is done and the way that information is plumbed across the economy. It reminds me so much of Internet Point One. Yeah. You know, uh, before the browser yep. wars, when it were things like, and I'm sure some people listening to this haven't even heard of it, things like FTP and Gopher and Archie and um, Usenet, and where the internet was, it was an incredibly dry conversation to talk about the internet. And, um, well, and just as today where people don't know what TCP IP is, right? They are using that protocol every single day. And that's why blockchain feels so familiar to me because I remember that phase of the internet. DIY where, internet. Yeah, yep. where it wasn't images, it wasn't videos, it wasn't music, it wasn't connecting with your friends. It was just, as you put it, plumbing. I remember the first time I FTP'd into a computer. I was at my uh, doing undergrad in South Africa at my uni there. And um, I was fiddling around with this thing called the internet and I FTP'd, i.e. just connected to a file server at a university in the States. And I know it sounds incredibly, incredibly simplistic and rudimentary, but the fact that I was connected to a computer in the US from South Africa, yep. it was a buzz. Just that alone that I, could, that I could just do a directory listing in that computer of files that they yep. had made public. Now, of course, to someone who's 20 years old listening to that, they'd probably be, I sound like a super old person talking about, like, I remember a time when we didn't use automobiles type thing. But that's why blockchain, I'm so excited about it because I do feel, as you put so well, that new form of plumbing, who knows when we're going to get that 
um, internet browser equivalent that's going to just allow um, scaffolding for, for the whole next um, revolution of, of products and services. Yeah, it's a good analogy. It's like changing your own oil, um, you know, the early days. The, the true geeks say that, you know, the World Wide Web stuffed everything up and, that you know, the real internet was TCP IP. Well, the true geeks even say that the World Wide Web was okay but the closed walls of the Facebooks is, is, is really ending the open web, which is a, which is a problem. Well, look, we could riff on that. Um, there are some idealists, there are some utopians that see blockchain as a model for a new way of decentralising the internet. And I'm afraid that a lot of that is really naive. And I say that with, with respect. I, 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 think that, I think that the innovation of blockchain and, and the empowerment or the energy that it provides us to think about new ways of decentralising, that's great. But in and of itself, no technology is going to decentralise the internet. Blockchain started out as being a decentralised assumption. They, they assumed that they wanted to do something without intermediaries. So, you know, there's no magic. It's a particular solution for a particular style of problem. Blockchain will not generate trust either. I like to say that blockchain is actually the opposite of a trust machine. It, it is about two people that don't trust each other exchanging value. And that is really interesting. It's technologically fascinating. But it, it doesn't produce new ways of trust. Trust happens off-chain. The thing about blockchain is that it was purely digital. Those bitcoins are on the internet and they're nowhere else. They're, they're, they're in the cloud, if you like. They're only digital. Nothing happens off-chain. There's no trust off-chain. But as soon as you say something like, I want to put a land title or a health record on the blockchain, mm -hmm. you need to bridge the analog to the digital. You need to bridge the real world to the, to the chain. And that, that edge effect... Is, is always involving some sort of agent or a third party. Somebody needs to say, you know, Steve Wilson has got flu. Mm. Here's the diagnosis. I want to put the diagnosis into a, a blockchain-based medical record. I, I don't even know what the point of that is. People are not really clear about it. But it's got nothing to do with trust because the trust in the healthcare system is about the guy that, you know, gave me the jab and, and gave me the blood test and said I've got flu. Uh, no technology changes that. And um, things get fiercely complicated in healthcare very quickly. And the off-chain processes are where trust lives. What about governance and the blockchain? I mean, ah. one, of the, one of the areas that technology has not disrupted that much is the, the, the governance process, whether it's everything from voting or, the, or, or even the, um, the, the political process in a way itself. Yeah, governance um, is a thorny issue. I mean, the first thing to say philosophically is that, again, there will always be an off-chain or a real-world component to governance. The Bitcoin is like, you know, it's, it's, it's bullshit in, bullshit forever mm. on, on, the, on the blockchain. So the idea that something like land titles could be incorruptible on the blockchain and people use that language, they say things could be incorruptible. Well, it's just naive because if there's a bad actor mm -hmm. who's surveyed a plot of land and lied about where the boundaries are and then put that lie on the blockchain. It doesn't solve that problem. It doesn't solve it. It's not self-governing. Having said that, there, there are some visibility issues that blockchain technologies can certainly help with. There's a, the chief technology officer for R3, um, a guy called Richard Brown, has a lovely phrase. He says that this technology allows me to know what you see mm -hmm. and for you to know that I see what you see mm -hmm. and you know that I know that what <laughs> I see is what you see. So, you know, it's turtles all the way down. But it is about visibility and, and confidence that we all see the same thing. And a conventional database doesn't allow you to do that. Um, a distributed database with three or four instances of SQL around the world, these things are manually um, mm. replicated, manually synchronised. 
these blockchain technologies can be self-synchronizing insofar as no administrator needs to manually um, reconcile the data. It, it reconciles itself. Now, that provides some really nice properties. It could take a layer of audit out. But, you know, ultimately it doesn't take things like key management out. Um, every, every participant on a blockchain needs to have uh, cryptographic keys. The right keys need to be in the right hands. You need to make sure that... They the can right get stolen. Correct. Keys mm -hmm. can get stolen. Keys can get lost. So that, that level of real-world, you know, care and, and hygiene doesn't go away. In fact, it just gets amplified. So one of the questions I get asked, Steve, is um, how do I actually – what's a good way to start for me playing with blockchain technologies, with crypto technologies? Any tips or ideas on, on little projects people can get involved with or courses or websites? So it still is quite difficult to, to, for, for the layperson to, to really get their hands dirty. Well, it, well, it seems to be from the outside. Look, for the lay people, um, you know – non-geeks, people that are trying to work out what this means to them. So they may be business people, they may be um, um, informed sort of amateurs and so on. My advice is to, is to not worry about how blockchain does what it does. Um, there's all sorts of species of blockchain already. Get yourself a primer that says, you know, what does cryptocurrency do and what's it for? And have a look at the way that this technology over the next couple of years is going to become integrated and productized in particular use cases. You know, I, I um, recently came back from India where a company I spoke to started with over 100 different use cases for blockchain technology, uh, an incredible eye chart of a list. The good thing is that they've recently whittled that list down to less than a dozen use cases that they're really concentrating on. And so they've got rid of these wild ideas about healthcare and land titles and, um, and voting. You know, voting is a hell of a problem. Um, it's never been solved by any particular tech and blockchain's not going to solve voting either. But they're concentrating on some really sort of quite mundane, as far as the layperson's concerned, mm -hmm. uh, use cases like trade documentation, travel documentation, maybe airline reservations, um, maybe ground transportation mm -hmm. reservations. Airline reservations, there's a lock on that stuff from big mainframe applications, mm -hmm. Galileo and these things forever, you're not going to displace them overnight, but maybe land transportation in Asia, multimodal land transportation, multiple agents, multiple ticketing resellers, hell of a problem. Um, and again, how do you make sure that everybody has the same idea of the truth of a very complicated data set? So, mm. you know, really good use cases there. I know that some of your audience are, are real geeks and, you know, we we're just talking about FTP and doing real work. Um, there are some really good options there. Um, the Bitcoin community itself or the Ethereum community is um, probably an even better supported open source community. And it's got a new level of respectability that's been brought about by this thing called the Ethereum Enterprise Alliance, which is a group of um, big companies and small that are coming together to produce more um, governance and more sort of IPR rights, um, more certainty around what they're doing on the Ethereum blockchain. So for real enthusiasts and engineers that want to get their hands dirty, it's a really good place to be. The history of Ethereum is that people play with Ethereum, they play with cryptocurrency and blockchain, they get the hang of it, and then a lot of them tend to then pick up their notes and software and pike off to build something afresh. What are your thoughts? Last question, I know time's against us at the moment. ICOs. It's getting a lot of buzz in the industry because, uh, you know, 
in the startup world, there's entrepreneurs are always trying to find the shortest path to some sort of funding so that they can uh, prototype and, and and get playing with the what they love to play with. Um, a lot of criticism about our CEOs and people are saying that the SEC is going to really um, clamp down on them. That's a lot of people are going to lose lose their pants, so to speak. Yeah, I think the SEC and, and regulators are generally going to clamp down on criminality. Mm. And uh, look, I'm, I'm not authoritative on ICOs. I suggest that people um, listen to Dave Birch from the UK. Dave Birch is, has got a good voice on ICOs. From where I sit, um, some prof- some percentage of ICOs are, are, um, are simply criminal. They're, they're mm-hmm. fraudulent. It, it's you know it's crowdsourcing. It's opportunistic. Well, it's opportunistic, and it and it's done uh, in a in a sexy. Um, kind of way that appears to be intrinsically sound because it's cryptocurrency, it's a new form of crowdsourcing and, um, you know, you, you're not going to get your money back in the majority of those of those schemes. I, mm. I just don't know why if you've got a real project that's that's got a real ROI, why you don't go and raise real money. Uh, and the as, fact that um, you're doing it in the dark or in the shadows with ICOs is um, it's, it's just about taking out the friction and it's about largely it's about people getting their hands on money super fast and of course, the percentage of those schemes are going to be unquestionable. And inherently, startups are incredibly risky. And right, um, and just like any business, Mark Sister, who's a well-known VC in LA, and he writes and blogs a lot and tweets a lot. And he said, regardless of your source of funding, you still have to be a profitable, sustainable business. It doesn't. It doesn't change the laws of physics. It, the, the laws of physics apply uh, absolutely, and and the laws of common sense. You know, if something looks too good to be true, guess what? It probably is. Uh, ain't, ain't that the truth? Steve Wilson, Principal Analyst at Constellation Research. We're going to link to your Twitter accounts on the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us. People can continue their discussion with you on Twitter. It's interesting times. Um, we'll, time will tell. The future is infamously difficult to predict. So we'll see. You know, b- Blockchain and crypto is just... So many of us have projected so much promise onto it and, and, and we'll see if anything happens or, or if there's some other technology that comes and just sideswipes it and steals its thunder. Well, watch the next 10 years. You know, We always um, overestimate what could be done in one year and we underestimate 10 years. And uh, that's, that's my view. We ain't seen nothing yet. Absolutely. Steve, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure, Kevin. Thanks. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by CheckDog. Use CheckDog to easily review and monitor your website for spelling errors, broken links, and broken images, all with the push of one button. CheckDog can also automatically monitor your website and notify you of newly introduced spelling errors. Go to checkdog.com forward slash podcast to receive 50% off your first month subscription. CheckDog.com, helping the world's leading websites keep their content error-free. So it's always interesting. I'm I, I'm enjoying getting all these different perspectives around blockchain and Bitcoin. Uh, as of today, as we speak, the, the date of recording, third of November, Bitcoin's up seven thousand dollars to seven thousand US dollars for one Bitcoin. Lots of talk, lots of buzz, lots of mainstream chatter about it. There's a lot of excitement that that it's going to transform democracy itself. Uh, and I think it's up to all of us to really learn and understand this technology. It's hitting some sort of nerve somewhere. There's a lot of rumors that Amazon's going to start accepting Bitcoin, which will be absolutely significant. There's the first 
derivative trading that's going to happen with Bitcoin, which is significant because it will allow institutions to invest in Bitcoin. So it's always interesting, Kate, to, to learn more about this very obscure technology that just keeps on soldiering along. Yeah, definitely. And it's interesting as well, like Steve sort of had a bit of a alternative perspective on a few things uh, and he made some good points. Like a lot of this technology in some ways is sort of getting ahead of itself and people are getting super excited and maybe going a little bit too far instead of sort of coming back and thinking about the impact of what they're doing and, and how they can make it right from the start. Yeah, look, I think... There's also there's so many different use cases. You know, Australia is very different to Venezuela and Zimbabwe, and they can use the Bitcoin and blockchain for very different reasons. In Zimbabwe, you know, Bitcoins are selling at an even higher premium because there's so much sovereign risk there, and and the blockchain does a, a much better job of maintaining the store of value than their own government does. It is interesting and it's, you know, I think government's role in general is just shifting so much. There was so much many years ago that only governments could do, only governments could build out infrastructure and go into space. And now you have private companies like SpaceX and, and Elon Musk's, you know, Tesla that are, that are involved in doing things that the government could only previously do. You know, previously, only the government could be provide a store of value in terms of currency, but now you have the blockchain that's doing it. So this is my interest in, in, in the fact that democracy has been wonderful but imperfect. And is, is this a missing piece to really, you know, the spirit of technology in my mind is always to improve things, net improvements. We may go forward and back a little bit, but net improvements. And is this the dawning of something very, very special? I'm telling my friends to buy a little bit of blockchain even because if this is history happening, they can at least say, I was a, I was a part of it. Yeah, that's true. A good little, uh, I mean, I guess it's one of those things like, I was, I was there for that and I, I made it through or and it doesn't really matter about the outcome. Like it's already made such a big impact. Even if it falls over, it'll still go down in history, I think. Yeah, it's, look, it's, I think it was its ninth birthday this week. Um, if I stand eighth or ninth, so it's 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 not you know it's not the new kid on the block. Um, so it has it has stood the the test of time, and I'll always give James Peter credit for being the first person that I heard that said, "The more I learn about it, the more I can see it's it's here to stay." And this was in the very very early days, and boy, do I wish that. And I think he does as well that he listened to himself. Maybe we'll get him in for a chat. Uh, he's the ex-co-founder of Manage Flitter, and uh, he's got his own startup now, Charge Desk. And uh, maybe we should. He was the first person that I uh, that I met that was just so so committed to it. Anyway, that's episode one hundred eight. Um, hey, by the way, we sometimes have a segment called Startup Minutes, where for free we don't charge anything for this. If you're a startup or a small business anywhere in the world, and you want to send us a little promotion, 20 seconds or so, tell us about your business and we'll play it and we'll link it in the show notes. And we do this just because we love the industry and we love giving a bit back to our listeners. All you have to do is email podcast at itsamonkey.com and say, hi, I'm from abc.xyz and we do one, two, three and love your show. And you'll get all of that and we don't charge. So 
send us through a startup minute. We've been a little bit slack in actually uh, reaching out and trying to get those. But I quite like engaging with the community in that way. So um, if you have a small business, you have nothing to lose. You'll get some nice links to your website. You'll get some mentions. And it'll take you two minutes to do. And we get the nice feeling good of giving something back. So that's episode 108. I know we're a little bit late. Um, Kate's been away and things been happening. We try to keep this going weekly. And um, we've got some other great interviews coming up over the next few weeks. So uh, tune in and um, hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks a lot. See ya.